Just a quick note before we get started, this episode contains descriptions of true crime scenarios and may not be appropriate for young audiences. Okay, Houston, we've had a problem here. Say again, please. Uh, Houston, we've had a problem. Hi, I'm Andrew Wallace, and welcome to the We've Got a Problem podcast, where each week we explore inspiring stories of struggle, success, and solutions to prevalent problems and how our guests have turned a problem into an opportunity. This week, I'm talking to Vic Ferrari, retired NYPD detective turned author. He's written four books, giving us a humorous behind-the-scenes look at the New York City Police Department, and his latest book, Confessions of a Catholic High School Graduate recounts colorful stories from his high school years growing up in the rough and tumble borough of the Bronx. I think I'm, I'm so excited to talk to you because I, I, I did briefly live in New York, but, uh, but was, 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 was too much of a, uh, of a scaredy cat to, to even venture into the Bronx, even when I lived there. Uh, and uh, I, I, when, when I lived in New York, it was, it was an entirely different uh, thing than it must have been when, when you were growing up. What, what was that like? What, what was it like growing up in, in, in the Bronx when you were? You know, it, it's one of those things when you're in it, you don't realize you think everybody lives like that. So I'm born and raised in the Bronx, um, went to Catholic high school in the Bronx, played Little League. Um, parts of the Bronx, you know, I, I'm in my mid 50s now. So you're talking the 70s and 80s where, you know, parts of the Bronx were on fire all the time. Like the South right. Bronx was burning. And there were, you know, there were parts of the Bronx that were really bad. Where I grew up was, I like to say, it was half Irish, half Italian with a mafia influence sprinkled in. <laughs> so, like, my neighborhood was one of these places where people didn't call the police quite a lot. They really didn't. Like, they settled things themselves. Everybody drove around with a baseball bat in the back seat, And, like, it's like with the mob around, like, you couldn't screw around with the wrong guy's sister or beat somebody out of money because... One day, someone would creep up on you with an Abraham Lincoln mask and a baseball bat <laughs> and kick your <laughs> ass. So, it, was that, it was that kind of neighborhood. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I just it's it's in my ignorant mind. I mean, it, it, I, I build all these stories up. Right. So so and I'm in the film business. So that's kind of what I'm always looking at is is writing a story in my head for people that probably doesn't exist. But in my mind, I'm going, well, yeah, I mean. Kids probably did one of three things, right? They 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 either joined the police department, joined the mob, uh, or or became a firefighter. Like it's like what you could either going to be be a criminal or a police officer, and there's not a, or maybe both. There's not a lot separating the. No, the you're 100 percent right. It was civil service, right? Yep. Or it was the utilities, Con Ed, or the phone company, or the cable company. Some guys went to college, not a lot, and then the rest got sucked into, you know, either became losers around the neighborhood or got involved with the mob. That's not everybody, but there was that influence there. Yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. So, I mean, so what, I I, I always like to start at the beginning before we get into this stuff, and I'm just always curious, setting the stage, what it was like, what your your background was. So how did you become a cop? I grew up lower middle class family. My dad was a butcher. My mom was a housewife until later in life when she worked in a bank as a teller. You know, it was I was my parents wanted me to go to college. But like when I was about five years old, my mom used to take me to the movies and around the corner from the movie theater was a police station. So I would run up to the police cars and stick my head in the window and look at the hats and the nightsticks. And then I'd watch the way the cops interacted in front of the precinct. And I said, you know, every boy gets sucked into looking at that gun. And I'm like, 
I'd like to have one of those. You know? <laughs> then, like, by age 10, and this is true, my friends and I used to sneak into the post office and steal FBI wanted posters off the wall. <laughs> so, like, we have a, a wanted poster for Billy Ray something or other, wanted for a bank robbery in Arkansas, and we'd be in a local deli, like, look at this f***er over here. That, 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 that could be him. Like, we're lucky we didn't get our ass <laughs> I knew what I wanted to do. Like my parents wanted me to go to college. I have none of it. And by 20, I took the police exam. I passed. And by 21, I was in the New York city police Academy. Wow. That, that was, that was probably a really interesting time to be in the police force because the, you know, the things, the, I mean, things, things didn't start clearing up in, in, in New York city till later. I mean, it was, that was a hard time to, to, to be around the you know, graffiti was was all over the subway the the you know just it seemed like the city i mean you know in the 70s right that new york declared bankruptcy i mean the city was <laughs> the city was having trouble so oh, was the west when i got hired yeah it, it yeah was the west. yeah i mean you get out of the police academy they threw me in field training and back then they would take the rookie cops and they would sprinkle us around different neighborhoods on foot posts by ourselves. And I remember like getting dropped off on Fulton Avenue in the South Bronx off the Cross Bronx Expressway. And I mean, there's literally 30, 40 abandoned six story buildings as far as the eye can see burned out either, you know, boards in the window or concrete block like that filled up the doorways. It looked like a lost civilization. And then you got to remember when I got hired, it was in the throes of the crack epidemic. Oh yeah. You got crack zombies walking by selling stuff and, and, you know, selling their bodies. So yeah, it was the wild west my first couple of years. I mean, what are you supposed to do on a foot post alone in this? What, what, what can you do? I mean, they outnumber you with, Two guys. That's it. You're 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 done. What? Wh- how can you? Well, how can you make an impact? Oh, you make no impact at all. It's like <laughs> shoving sand against the tide. But so you figure it out, right? So at first, like every rookie, it's like having parents. You get on the radio. You come across a situation. You call the training sergeant. He shows up. He kind of fixes it, right? After about the third or fourth time in a week, the training sergeant says, "Listen, do I bother you?" I'm like, no, sergeant. He goes, "Then stop bothering me." figure it out. So I'm like, okay, there's actually a story in my book, the NYPD's flying circus, a friend of mine, who's a rookie cop and uh, constantly calling, calling the sergeant and told him to stop bothering him. And he's got this foot post and it's like a dr- drug den. And he's, you know, he thinks he's doing his job. He's chasing the drug dealers off the corner and he's pissing off the drug dealers. They're pissing him off. So one day he's got his back up against the building and he's like, Oh, it's about one o'clock. I'm going to go for my meal hour. He takes a step off the building and he has and an explosion. Somebody threw a cat off the six story building and the cat exploded on the sidewalk. All over. <laughs> so he gets on the radio and he you know, calls for the cavalry, right? Calls cop needs assistance, right? And everyone's showing up like 30 police cars show up. He's covered in cat, right? The sergeant shows up who's pissed out and he goes, what? And he goes, someone threw a cat off the roof at me. He goes, do I look like I work for the Department of Sanitation? He goes, call a guy in a green shirt and have him come and clean his shit up. <laughs> I just, doesn't phase him at all. I don't work for the, so what? Just clean it up. Go clean your pants and come back out. Yeah. So, so you go through that kind of stuff. You move up through the through the ranks a bit. You're there for a while. 
you you became a detective at some point. Now you're now you're not just some some rookie. What what were you working on on mostly? Was it auto theft a lot? How did you end up in that? Just walk me through it a bit. Well, before I became a detective, I worked in various units. Like in my fifteen, in my twenty years, fifteen of which were spent in plain clothes. So before I was a detective in the auto crime, I worked in the Manhattan North Narcotics Division. Okay. I, I was an investigator, not an undercover, but I did do undercover work, not big buys, like you know, buying a couple of vials of crack off a couple of road pirates on the side of the road, or you know, it was all buy and bust operations and getting search warrants. I absolutely hated narcotics. I thought I would love it. And it's just like the McDonald's fast food of police work. It's like every day you're going out, you're locking up 10, 15 street people, junkies. You're locking them up for hand-to-hand transactions. And the thing with in narcotics is I always had a cold because you're strip searching and searching 20, 30 street people that live outdoors. Right. They've always got a cold and they're coughing on you. You're always afraid of getting AIDS or hepatitis because a lot of these guys are heroin addicts. So they're carrying a needle in their sock or in their pants. He always asked me, my man, listen, before I start searching you and going into your pockets, tell me now if you got a needle, just tell me now. And 99% of the time they would, but if you didn't ask, there's, you know, there's horror stories of cops getting stuck. Um, By about 10 years in, I was always a car guy. I was always getting into car chases when I was on patrol. My last 10 years, (laughs) not always. Well, I grew up in a neighborhood where stealing a car was a rite of passage. I wasn't a car thief, but I worked in a gas station and there was always guys coming in with stolen cars, trying to sell the car, trying to get the stolen car fixed. I knew what to look for, broken steering columns, vent windows. You know, when you get a flat tire and they give you, you, you go into the trunk and they give you that little bull tire that's supposed to last for 40 miles. But right. someone that steals a car is going to drive around until that thing pops off the side of the car. Right. So I knew what to look for. I was always a car guy. So my last 10 years, I was a detective in the auto crime division. So that was chop shops, exporting stolen vehicles out of the country, um, mob owned salvage yard, a lot of mafia stuff and, and, and the garden variety pain in the ass car thieves. And I, I did that for my last 10 years. <laughs> it's a garden variety. Just, you know, the, 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 the normal guys who drive up our, uh, our auto insurance rates. Well, think of this, like in the early 90s, New York City was averaging 150,000 stolen vehicles a year. So it was like shooting fish in a barrel. If right. you were on patrol, or even when I was in the auto crime division, you driving around, you knew what to look for, or you had a computer in the car, it was off to the races. You, you right. know what I mean? Like if you wanted a stolen car arrest and you punched enough plates or you knew what to look for, you'd get one. It was just right. that easy. Yeah, yeah. Well, just start 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 paying you by how many how many cars you bring in. Like, ah, oh, you got you know, it's a five dollars. Let time. me tell you something. If there was a bounty on stolen cars. I wouldn't be doing podcasts or selling books. I'd be a very wealthy man. <laughs> exactly, exactly, exactly. So, I mean, I, I I'm curious. I mean, I because I, I, I want to hear the stories, right? I mean, everybody wants to hear the stories. But sure. what brought you to start writing? I mean, why did you? decide that that you just had to i mean obviously they're fantastic but what what brought you to to that point where you were doing podcasts and selling books yeah when i retired from the nypd i moved down to florida and i was bored so i got my certification and i I got hired by a local police department down here in florida and it was a great department but i went from being a detective in the world's largest police department to out on the road in my 40s now it's dealing with you know uh, duis domestics 
And it's totally different down here in Florida. Like I had a half day course on how to wrestle an alligator. I'm like, can't you just shoot these things? And they're like, no, you can't shoot them. I'm like, what are you kidding me? Like, you know, what, what, what do you get one of these rogue gators that goes into some lady's kitchen? You know what I mean? It's like, no, no, you got to call animal control or, you know, if not, there's duct tape in every car. And I'm like, I'm not wrestling some Jurassic Park thing. You out of your freaking mind. So being a cop on the road is a young man's game. And by that point I was in my forties and you know, it's, it's the, I'm doing a midnight and I'm on my fourth cup of coffee. I'm like, what am I doing to myself? So I re-retired and I was encouraged by my friends and family. Like, you know, you got all these wild stories, you know how to tell a story. Why don't you start writing these things down and, and put out a series of books? And I was very apprehensive about it, but I said, if I do it, the two things I don't want to do is get somebody divorced or fired. <laughs> so I don't, you know, I like I, I change the names, the dates, the locations, the ranks in my books. But I mean, if, if you were a cop in New York, you, you know, everyone's heard these stories before. I mean, they're famous within the New York City Police Department. I can't I, really I can't imagine going from working in 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 New York to to, to Florida. Like you say, it's got to be totally different. It was like uh, an episode of Reno 911. Yeah. Like, <laughs> white trash uh, on the kiddie pools. And, you know, like it just nonsense. You know what I mean? Like people getting arrested. Walmart was like everybody shoplifting. You know what I mean? I was like spent all my time pulling people out of Walmart, you know, because store security grabbed somebody trying to shove CDs down their pants. <laughs> yeah, it's a that's a that's a far cry from uh, from narcotics and auto theft and 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 working in the city. I mean, I, so. Did you did you when you were working in New York, did you ever have to deal with somebody who was somebody you knew from back in the day who who'd, uh, you know, go, go, go to an arrest, find somebody who's stolen a car? You're like, come on, man. Like you live down the street from me. I've known you since you were 12. Like what's, what's cool? it, it's so there's a character in the Catholic high school uh, confessions of a Catholic high school graduate. There was a kid that I grew up with. And my dad used to tell me when we were young, when I was a kid, stay away from him. He's no good. And my father was right. And uh, we lost track of each other. But I knew he had done state time. He had been up in prison. And uh, I guess I, I probably had about 10 years on the job. And I was going to the local bank. I was still living in the neighborhood. And he's hanging out in front of the bank. And he sees me. And he's like, Vic. And I'm like, hey, bro, how you doing? And we're shaking hands and stuff. And like, he's got the heroin look. And I know he's done time. And he goes, we got to hang out sometime. And I started laughing. Are you fucking kidding? And he goes, oh, what do you think? You're too good for me? I go, dude, you chose your pad. I chose mine. I mean, what am I, what, are you going to teach me how to, how to catch heroin addicts? And I'm going to teach you how to be a better criminal? I said, I said, you know, don't take it personal. I said, but you're going your way. You're going up. You're going down. I'm going up. I said, I can't do this. And sad, it's funny. My brother called me up about, I don't know, about eight years ago. And he goes, I, he goes, I want, I want, and he starts reading me an obituary. And it's like 20 questions. And I'm like, oh, I know who that is. Because he said one of the, one of the deceased sisters' names. And I said, I know who it is. Like, my, oh. And, you know, like an obituary is like, loving father. Oh, yeah, you know, right. Dedicate, and, and this guy was none of the things. In the, and my brother's <laughs> laughing. Like, my brother's got a gallows gentleman like me. In my books, I refer to my brother as my dim-witted brother as Fredo Corleone Ferrari. But like he's reading me the obituary, and he can't get enough of it. And I finally figured out who it was. <laughs> I mean, we gotta we gotta talk about some of these some of the stories. What's between cops, crime, and chaos, uh, flying circus, uh, law and disorder? Give us a taste. What's what's your favorite what do you want? story? What kind of story do you want? I, I you know just I mean wild, crazy. You wouldn't believe what's going on. Okay. You, you, 
Okay, so in my book, NYPD Law and Disorder, it opens up with a chapter called Embarrassing Moments. Because every author likes to paint themselves as the tough guy or the genius or they save the day in the nick of time. And the reality is that's not always true. So the book opens up, and this is a true story. I'm on patrol. It's the early 90s. It's almost towards the end of our ship. I see a gypsy cab drive by, which a gypsy cab is an illegal four-door cab, drives by with three guys in the back seat. One of them is leaning over with his head next to the driver. We had been get, we had, had a slew of cab robberies. So I told my partner, I go, you know what? Follow that cab. Let's just see if he's getting robbed. Next thing you know, the cab starts going through red lights because the guys in the back seat tell him, don't stop or the police will kill you. We finally get this cab stopped in traffic. There's three guys in the back seat and they're passing around a shopping bag. Bag rips open and four kilos of Coke spill out in the back seat of the cab. So we take the hombres out of the car. We handcuff them. We bring everybody into the precinct. And I'm on top of the world. It's like I won the friggin' Stanley Cup. I'm walking around with these kilos. Everybody's coming over, taking photos with me. Telling, You're going to narcotics. Top of the world. So the drugs go down to the drugs go down to the lab. The bad guys go down to Bronx Central Booking, and now I've got to go down to Manhattan, uh, Bronx Criminal Court and draw up the arrest with a district attorney to file charges. It's about eight o'clock at night. I get down to the Bronx DA's office, and I'm hungry. Now that neighborhood is a shitty neighborhood. After five o'clock at night, everything closes down. There's no place to eat except they opened up a food court across the street. I'm like, great, gonna get something to eat. I go in there. There's a little Italian restaurant. I get spaghetti and meatballs or whatever. I sit down. I'm reflecting on the rest. I'm in uniform. I'm all puffed up. My stomach goes. And I'm like, oh, I got to take a dump. Now, I can't use the bathroom across the street because it's a dungeon and there's never toilet paper. And I'm like, oh, the food court. This is brand new. This is great. Get up. Walk into the men's room. It's antiseptically clean. I go into the stall. I take off my gun belt. I hang it on the hook on the stall. I drop my pants. I get on the ball. I'm getting ready for liftoff. And the next thing you know, I hear the bathroom, the front door of the bathroom kick in. And I hear like four or five teenagers. They're beating the crap out of each other. They're hitting the hand dryers. They turn it on the sinks. I'm like, yeah, I'm a cop in uniform, <laughs> but I got my pants down at my ankles. I'm kind of you know, vulnerable here. Well, after about ten, ten, 10 seconds of them screwing around, it gets really quiet. And I'm like, did they leave? Did they notice a pair of pants under the under the stall and said, maybe we should knock this crap off? Something told me, you know what? You better finish up and get out of here, right? Something told me to look up. When I looked up, one of the teenagers ran into the next stall, jumped up on the toilet, and he's hanging over the side of the wall trying to get my gun belts off the hook. I said, oh, shit. So I jump up off the bowl with my left hand, and I pull my try to pull my pants up with my left hand. With my right hand, I catch him around the neck like the scruff of his neck, and I pull him. When I pull him over the side of the wall, I inadvertently get him closer to my gun belt. Now, Oops. he grabs onto my gun belt. I'm like, oh, shit. So now I let go of my pants. I mean, I'm, I'm standing there <laughs> with my pants out for and it's a hockey fight. So now I'm punching him in the face, and I'm telling him, let go of that gun belt. Let go of that gun belt, right? His friends run into the next stall. They grab his legs, and now it's a tug of war. He's got my gun belt, and he's going over the side of the wall. Like, if I lose that gun, man, I'm screwed. <laughs> Finally, after enough blows to the head, he lets go of the gun belt, and it hits the stall, right? I grab the gun belt. I pull up my pants. Oh, and when he went over the wall, he bucked the wall. You know those, like, aluminum parts? Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's not meant for a 135-pound teenager. So he, like, cratered it on the way over. I pull up my pants. I put on my gun belt. I run into the food court and there's like this 300 pound porter buffing the floor with a Sony Walkman on. So I run up to him. I'm like, Poppy, Poppy. He takes out the, 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 ear, the earphones and I go, did you see some teenagers run through here? And he goes, 
No, I see nothing. I'm like, <laughs> so at that point, what was I supposed to do? Call the police on myself? Right. I mean, yeah, there's 12 precincts in the Bronx, but everybody goes to court. I'd have been the laughing stock of the Bronx. Like, yeah, you see that cop over there? That's the guy who was taking a dump and he almost lost his gun belt. So I kept that story to myself before I wrote NYPD. Kind of cathartic to get those stories out. But, oh, man, I mean, that's the time, times think things go pear shaped, so to speak, and and uh, get into all that stuff. I get, I still get excited talking about that because it's like it's still fresh in my mind. This is like thirty two years later. Well, I, I mean, you know, that's. I'm sure that's just one of of many crazy situations in the book that that come up. So, folks, if you haven't uh, read them yet, check out the books. The uh, and I've got some questions for you about that that I kind of ask everybody, which is when it comes, and it, this can be anything in general. It doesn't have to be necessarily related to police work, writing, uh, those kinds of things. But what do you feel like the, the biggest fallacy is that everybody buys into that's total BS? What what oh, are people missing? Work? Yeah, well, yeah, uh, sure. Uh, the cops don't have a sense of humor. And they do. Well, I mean, not all the traffic guys don't. They're, they're kind of pariahs in the station house. We can get to that later. But most, you know, when you run up to a cop and you've got a problem, you're going to get the stoic, robotic, because the cop doesn't know you. He doesn't know where you're coming from. A lot of times the person that runs up to the police is the guilty one. and <laughs> He's trying to dump like a bag of, of crap on somebody else. So you're going to get the stoic, robotic. Yes, ma'am. No, sir. You know, blah, 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 blah. But the reality is in the locker room, I mean, the stuff that goes on with the practical jokes. I mean, I've got a whole chapter in NYPD through the looking glass about practical jokes that you wouldn't believe. I mean, some of them were so sophisticated, like sending people on wild goose chases, or I put a bag of crickets in the backseat of someone's car because he gave me the wet ass. So, I mean, I was going out on a date. They changed my pants, and this detective noticed I changed my pants. So when I went to get a cup of coffee, he dumped ice water in my chair. So I sit down. I'm like, oh, everybody in the office is in on it. They're all laughing. I said, all right, you got me. I go upstairs. I change my pants. Downstairs, there was a, across the street, there was a pet store. I went in there and I bought a bag with 100 crickets in it. Apparently, they feed snakes and stuff with these things. I went into the parking lot. I used a Slim Jim and I opened up the door to his car, his personal car. I cut that bag. I was like, ooh. I mean, they were jumping all over. It was like locusts. And then I shut the door. He got in. He was going home. He slams on the brakes. We were watching him out the window. And he's like, what the? He wanted P.S. He had to sell the car. Like, bombs in there and stuff. And, like, it would kill them for a while. But then they were like triples in Star Trek. They would start breathing again. And this went on for, like, a month. He finally put the car for sale on Craigslist and got rid of the car. <laughs> I, 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 children at home. Don't try this, but that's... <laughs> oh, dude, I'm Gandhi until provoked, but I mean, I was going out and he soaked my chair. What was I supposed yeah, to do? No, of course. Yeah. Hey, turnabout's fair play there, man. I had no recall. So, I mean, and and conversely, what do you think the most underrated concept is that that uh, that people that people overlook? Uh, what, what are people missing? The cops, uh, I mean, I'm sticking to a law enforcement theme, that... that um, Cops have all this power and everything and they don't care. I mean, you're just talking about civil servants making under sometimes under $50,000 a year. They just want to go home at the end of the day to their wife and kids. They, they don't go out looking to screw with society. Are there bad apple cops? Yes. And they often get caught sooner than later. Um, 
But it's not like the police go out looking, have a mindset of, all right, who are we going to, you know, it's like me and you apart as we get in the car, like, who are we going to screw with today? Right. It's not like that. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think part of the question is, you know, because policing has been in the news a lot off and on lately oh, yeah. and, you know, where, where we've, where we've gone right, where we've gone wrong and, and throwing the baby out with the bathwater. But what would you, I mean, what would you tell somebody in the, police force today, whether it's small town, big town, New York, Florida. I mean, what, if you were starting over and you knew what you knew now, what would you, what kind of advice would you give? I would tell rookies, keep your eyes open and your mouth shut. Learn as much as you can learn from the old guys. Nobody likes to know it all. In a lot of ways, uh, being a cop of the police department is like the mafia. Everything is on your reputation. You get a bad rep early on, that will follow you for decades. If you do something stupid or bad or, you know, egregious, it's very unforgiving. So you got to fly straight. Um, You know, nobody likes to know it all. I I saw that with some of the kids coming up and I said, wow, if I did that in my day, forget it. They would turn your locker upside down and put it in the shower, which used to happen. I mean, oh, yeah, especially like the summons guys that keep writing cops, families and stuff. This is the good old bad days. I don't know what goes on. I'm retired 15 years now. But like you get a problem child and like every 15 minutes, a cop from another precinct would call up and go, who is this? Let's just say for all I'm making up a name, Johnson. Who is this Johnson? I was like, oh, what did he do now? He goes, he wrote my brother-in-law a ticket. And it's like, could you talk to him? I'm like, he's not the kind of guy you can talk to. And then like. He would write, you know, enough people summonses that they would retaliate and turn his locker upside down. Yeah, no, for sure. For sure. There was one guy, um, he was balding and he made the mistake of leaving his locker open. He wasn't well liked and Rogaine had just come out. <laughs> so they dumped the Rogaine in another container and put wood stain in the Rogaine bottle. And he's over there applying it to the top of his head. And he, he had like a nice shellacked head. He had a nice finish. <laughs> well, that's one way to one way to do it. I didn't do have, that, but I saw it. <laughs> I didn't do that. I, I didn't do that, but I I saw it happen. Yeah, I mean, oh man, that just the all the stories, all the all the things that are going on. I think one of the important things, and 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 reading your books and and talking about all this stuff, is how important it is for us to keep a sense of humor when these things are happening. You know that that that. Whatever's going on, you know, a, a cat's exploding in front of you. A, 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 a you know, teenagers are trying to, to to take your gun belt. All these things may not be funny as it's happening, but it's certainly funny afterwards when you when you look back and you go, "I can't believe we got out of that. I can't believe that uh, that 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 we got around that." Talk to me a little bit about Hansel and Gretel here. You, I, I I know that's a big story. We got to hear that. Okay, so the Hansel and Gretel story is in one of my books. So my old partner, we used to call him Cancer because he killed more people than cancer. He was like in a whole bunch of gunfights and he always came out on top. Before, before he worked with me, he worked with this guy that was an amateur magician in his spare time, right? So it's the early 90s. We're all going to cop bars. We're hanging out, talking to girls and stuff. And, you know, you'd be at the bar talking to two, three girls and the magician would come over and he starts pulling flowers out of his sleeve or gold coins behind the ears. He's basically cock blocking us with magic. So I turned it to cancer and I go, could you get him out of here? Like, how do you compete with this guy? He goes, you know, if he wasn't so busy making balloon animals in the, in the radio call, like practicing for a side gig, he goes, you'd be the greatest cop in the world. 
Anyway, a couple of weeks later, they get called out to a six-story walk up in the Bronx. If the call comes in, is a 911 calls for help and the person hangs up and, it's, and, and the call comes for the basement apartment. So in a lot of these buildings, you have superintendents that live in these basement apartments and they're in charge of keeping the upkeep of the building. So it's on a midnight, my old partner, the magician, they go into this basement and there's two doors. So they go to door number one, they pound on door number one, no one answers the door. My old partner goes to pound on door number two and the magician tells him, eh, don't knock on that door. He goes, we made all this noise down here with our radios and nightsticks. If anybody, if anybody called the police, they would have came out already. So my old partner goes to hit door number two again. And he says, come on, I'll buy a cup of coffee. Let's get out of here. What they didn't realize is behind door number two, the super was selling coke out of the apartment. He fell behind on his payments to his wholesaler. Now, in the drug world, they don't send friendly reminders or cancel your cable. <laughs> they send a couple of Yugoslavian hitmen or Albanian hitmen to kill him. So what happens is they couldn't get him out of that apartment. So they did an old gypsy trick. They brought an attractive female with them. They knock on the door and they put the attractive female's face in the peephole. And he's like, oh, found money. He opens the door. The three of them rush the super. They're pistol whipping him. Where's the drugs? Where's the money? Super doesn't have the answer. They shoot him in the head. They roll him up in a carpet. They take him out of the apartment. And they throw him in the furnace of the building. Oh. So, so while the super's going up like a Puerto Rican fire log, the three of them go back into the apartment and they're ransacking it. So my old partner and the magician now were outside. They're about to knock on door number two, right? So they panic inside the apartment and the two guys come up with a plan and they tell the girl, who's in this, of course, they go, listen, open, if these cops knock on that door, open the door and just start yelling and screaming in Yugoslavian and lead them down the hallway and point to the kitchen. When you get past the threshold of this bedroom, throw yourself on the floor, we'll come out from behind, we'll shoot the two cops, we'll kill them, We'll throw them in the furnace and then we can leave. Well, they don't leave. So they, this never happens. So about a week or so later, the super's family starts looking for this guy. Like, what happened to him? The detectives get involved and they see that there's a 911 call to that apartment two weeks before. So they bring in my old partner and the magician and they say, listen, did you notice anything out of place or anything? And my, my old partner said, no, we knocked on that door, but we didn't knock on that door. But here's the thing. When we were leaving, there was when we were leaving the apartment, I noticed there was a car parked in a fire hydrant and I gave it a ticket. Well, that was the getaway car and it was registered to the female. So the detectives bring in the female. She starts spilling her guts, trying to, you know, yep. distance herself from it. But, you know, in for a penny, in for a pound. And through her, they were able to catch the two hitmen. So that's a story from my book. And it's called Last Night a Magician Saved My Life because the magician not told him not to knock on the door. They would have burned up in that furnace. And then the detectives had to go back to that building in February and shut up the shut the heat off for like two days to get oh, the yeah. guys small and bones and everything out of it. Everybody in the building was pissed off. Of course they, they were. Yeah. Leave it in there. It's fine. We know what's yeah. there. It's fine. One we, we gotta do one more story, right? So there's there's a there's a story in your book about uh, a, a guy stealing a carriage in Central Park. What 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 was that one? So that's from the NYPD's Flying Circus, Cops Crime and Chaos. There was a cop, he was Irish. But the Spanish cops used to call him El Diablo, the devil. And this guy was a madman party. He was great to hang out with, but you'd always get in trouble hanging out with him off duty. <laughs> and the, the running joke was if you worked with him long enough, one of three things would happen. You would either get divorced, 
you would go into rehab for alcohol or you would convert to Christianity because those are the only, because he just was that much of a party, always getting involved in things. And we used to say, this friggin' guy must have the Prince of Darkness running interference for him because anyone else would get involved in these things, they would have gotten fired. So anyway, El Diablo one night is in an Upper East Side bar over by Central Park. He's having a couple of cocktails and there's a couple of floozies at the bar and he's rapping to them. And, uh, a handsome cab operator comes walking into the bar. Those are the guys that drive the horse and carriages through Central Park. Right. And the guy was dressed, you know, he's got like the, the velvet vest and he's wearing a top hat. It was pretty obvious who he was. So El Diablo just makes a comment. He goes, hey, you mind if I take Seabiscuit for a ride? And the guy goes, yeah, sure. And he goes into the men's room. So El Diablo go, he's drunk. He goes, come on, ladies. He's an old child. He's an old friend of mine. Let's go. He loads the girls into the, into, into the, into the horse and carriage, moves the blocks, gives the horse a crack on the ass with the whip. He goes, come on. And the horse starts clippity-clopping. You know? So at first, everything's going fine, right? And he's El Diablo's impressing these girls. Well, after a while, the horse figures out there's an asshole behind the wheel. It's not Charlie. He doesn't know what he's doing. The horse says, F this, I'm going back to the barn for some oats and starts clippity-clop, clippity-clop, and he starts burning lights. Now, you can't burn lights with a horse and carriage in New York because if you get broadsided by a cab, somebody's right. going to get killed, right? El Diablo's from the Bronx. He didn't grow up in a farm on, in Ireland. <laughs> he's trying to stop this thing, and he's got a runaway horse and carriage. The girls are in the back screaming, stop, stop, let us out. He can't, right? The horse starts heading for Central Park. Meanwhile, two other handsome cab operators go, wait a minute, that's not Charlie, that's some <laughs> that's got the horse, stole his horse and carriage. Now they're in pursuit. So the thing goes into Central Park, right? And the way they were able to stop him was like, it was like a chariot race. One got in front and kind of started slowing down and another one boxed him in. And they were finally in Central Park somewhere. They were able to stop, stop the horse and carriage. The floozies jump out jump out of the back and run through Central Park, never to be heard from again, right? The two handsome cab operators think that El Diablo, well, he did steal the horse and carriage. They start kicking his ass, and he's like, wait, wait, I'm a cop, I'm a cop. <laughs> Their friend shows up. He starts getting his licks in. He goes, you know, we're calling the cops. You're going to get arrested. He goes, take me to an ATM right now. I'll give you 500 bucks. Will we be square? He goes, you take me to an ATM and give me 500 bucks? He goes, yeah. Went to an ATM, gave the guy five hundred bucks. <laughs> nothing ever happened of it. And we thought the story was we thought the story was nonsense. But one of the guys in my office knew a cop that worked in the Central Park precinct. Oh no, that happened. <laughs> so, so yeah, and El Diablo is still alive to this day. Wow, wow. I mean, Vic, this absolutely amazing. Thank you so much for sharing some of your stories with us, folks. If you want to hear more of Vic's stories, check out his books, his Amazon author page, follow him on social media. And until next time, I'm Andrew Wallace, and we don't have a problem. We've got an opportunity.